If you are a golfer, the best country club you could belong to in the entire country is Augusta National in Georgia. The course was designed by Bobby Jones, who's this mythic figure in the history of golf. And Golf Digest, when they ranked the top 100 courses in the country a few years ago, they ranked Augusta National number one. And it's there every year that the Masters Tournament is played. It's the only major championship in golf that is played in the exact same course every year, and it's played at Augusta National. So if you're a golfer, if you could join Augusta National, that would be awesome. How could you do that? Well, the answer is, you can't. There is no application process for membership at Augusta National. It is strictly by invitation only. And there are only about 300 members. I read down the list and I recognize some names that you would also. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Jack Welch. And if you happen to notice that all of those members were white men, that's not really an accident because one of the club's co-founders said, as long as I'm alive, all the golfers here will be white and all the caddies here will be black. So it was not until 1990 that Augusta National finally let in a black man. And note the word man. It was not until less than three years ago that they finally let in women. They let in two. So it turns out that Augusta National is the best of all golf clubs if you're a member, but it's the worst of all golf clubs if you're not a member. Because Augusta National is built around what will work for the insiders, not what will work for the outsiders. Now this is an immutable law of human nature. That when you or I or anyone are on the outside, we resent that very much. But when we get on the inside, slowly and imperceptibly, and maybe not even with our full conscious awareness, we make decisions for the benefit of who? Us, the insiders. And we are no longer willing to make ourselves really uncomfortable for the sake of those who are currently on the outside. And this human dynamic, which can afflict golf clubs, can also afflict churches. We might ask, for example, why is it that in the Anglican Church in North America right now, the average Sunday attendance in one of our parishes is 42? Is that because they're in towns of 800 and they are doing an amazing job of outreach, reaching 5% of their community on any particular Sunday? Or is it because, and I've been in small churches and been blessed, so don't take this as a, any word against small churches, but is there a dynamic in some, and I've visited some where this is true, What's awesome about 42 is I know the name and face of every other person here. And if this church grows to 50, 60, or 70, I'm not going to. And that feels awkward. I don't like anonymity. I don't like complexity. I don't like increasing size and disorientation. So we're going to set up the culture so that subtly and imperceptibly we do not allow member number 43 to get in here. Okay, now before we congratulate ourselves and say, this kind of thinking could never enter the heart of resurrection, when Karen and I came back here 12 years ago, this was kind of a different church, and we were trying to plug back in, and so we did like all of you do. We grabbed the bulletin, and we're looking for ways to get connected. And I remember there was an announcement early on that went something like this. Rachel's Hope meets this Thursday at Joni's. 
What is Rachel's hope? Who's Joni? What's her last name? Where does she live? Does she have a phone number? Would it be okay if I came? What time does it start? Well, if you were an insider dummy, you would know, right? Now, people don't intend this, but it can happen. Now, I know the hearts of you here at Resurrection. There's nobody here who wants that. There is nobody here who wants that kind of church. But I think we ought to just pause for a moment and say with great sobriety, there have been good and godly Christians who have fallen afoul of insideritis. There have been good and godly churches that have become so insider-supportive and focused that they no longer actually attract or welcome in outsiders. They won't do the uncomfortable work to welcome them in, and they become repellent to the outsider. So it could happen, and we can't let that happen, and so we should ask ourselves with great, with great soberness, what is it that causes that, and how do we cure it? For the answer to that, we're going to turn to one of the defining moments in the history of Christianity. Turn to Acts 10, if you would. And here in verse 1, we meet the ultimate outsider. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. Okay, if you're a Jew and you are inside God's people, is there anyone you hate more than the person who is part of the enemy army that has taken over your country and is occupying it, that is taxing you until you bleed, and is hassling your dad when he's on his way to work? Is there anybody you loathe more than that? So this guy's on the outside. But he wants to be on the inside. Verse 2, he was a devout, God-fearing man as was everyone in his household, and he gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. So God says, I'm going to bring you in. One afternoon about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa, 30 miles away, and summon a man named Simon Peter, who's going to come and tell you how you can enter in and become on the inside. So, now that we've met the ultimate outsider, let's meet the ultimate insider. Verse 9, the next day, as Cornelius's messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It's like a rooftop deck. Peter has not only been a lifetime Jew, but he's living in Jerusalem. He's the leader of this new Jewish movement that follows Jesus of Nazareth. He's the ultimate Jewish person, and it was about noon, and he was hungry. And while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And if the vision that Cornelius got terrified him, the vision that Peter gets horrifies him. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners, and in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds meaning some of them were clean and fine for Jews to eat, and some were not. Some were ceremonially unclean. They were not kosher. They would defile you. You could never eat them. And then a voice, though, in the vision, oddly enough, says to him, get up, Peter, kill, and eat them. Now, we sort of view kosher as sort of a quirky oddity that doesn't have a lot of meaning or significance, but for Peter, this is part of his very identity. 
you take this away, and he doesn't know who he is anymore. Can I read some verses to you from Leviticus with which Peter would have been very familiar? I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from all other people. You must therefore make a distinction between ceremonially clean and unclean animals and between clean and unclean birds. This is not just a nicety. This is a part of the way that you show your holiness and devotion to God, your separation to Him. You must not defile yourselves by eating any unclean animal or bird or creature that scurries along the ground. I have identified them as being unclean for you. You must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. So is is it any wonder that Peter has this incredible emotional revulsion and says in verse 14, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything like that. I've never touched anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. I was trying to think, how can I, what analogy could I use that would get you to how emotionally repulsive this was? And I'm not sure this is a perfect one, but let me try. Suppose you are a committed vegan, and you are praying, and you have this vision in which coming down in the sheet is this tiny, scared chicken with darting little eyes. He's trapped inside a tiny cage, and he's being force-fed antibiotics and growth hormones. And you hear this voice saying, rise, kill, and eat, and you're like, no, I will never do that. That is wrong on so many levels. And that's how Peter feels. But listen to what the voice says. Don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. That means God is saying to him, Peter, 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 wake up, Peter. You've got to change your mind if you're going to be part of what I'm doing right now. And what I'm doing is a dramatic moment in the history of Christianity. Peter, I need you to know that you cannot call anything unclean if I call it clean. Verse 17, which is not in your bulletin, Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Why do they stand outside the gate? Because they're Gentiles. They know they're pagans, they're unclean. They can't ever go inside a Jewish person's house because the Jewish person would see that as defilement. And they don't like that, but that's reality. They've learned how to live with that, and so they stand outside the gate and call in. And meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I've sent them. And all of a sudden, Peter goes... Oh, I get it, I get it. The animals in my vision are symbols of people. These people, these pagans, that, these Romans, these people that are occupying our country, these people that I have no patience for or time with, that I see as totally unclean, God's saying, no, they're clean. And his, his brain can hardly get around this, so he, he goes with them which is defiling himself, and he goes to Cornelius' house. In verse 28, Peter says, first thing he says, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me. What an amazing phrase. But God has shown me. You could take this entire story and tell it in two phrases. No, Lord, but God has shown me. Was it while he was walking the 30 miles to Cornelius' house that he began ruminating and thinking, 
Oh, God called Abraham to be the father of all nations. Oh, the suffering servant in Isaiah was called to be a light to all the nations and peoples. Oh, Hosea said those who are not a people will be the people of God. But he gets it now. God has shown him. And can I tell you, when you and I move from no, Lord, to but God has shown me, miracles happen. There's an example of that right here in our area. Over at Parkview Community Church in Glen Ellen, they had a tradition where each Thanksgiving they would pick up people from the pad's homeless shelter and they would bring them to the church and serve them a Thanksgiving meal with the turkey and stuffing and all that stuff. And one night, uh, one of the members was serving the turkey and he sat down and was trying to talk to one of the homeless guys and something in that conversation just triggered that homeless guy and he took both fists and just pounded the table and said, you think you're better than me, but you're not. And he got up and stormed out. It was very uncomfortable. Now, a lot of Christians at that moment would have said, next year, let's pick up people from the assisted living facilities. But this person, God bless him, did something different. He said, you know what? Why is it that we've got this thing going on where we, the insiders, are doing this nice thing for them, the outsiders, and they sense it? Why don't we bring them in? Why don't we make them an insider? And so the church did something crazy. They started sending a van every Sunday morning to the pad shelter to pick up people. And they would bring them to church. And then they would feed them a hot lunch after church and then take them wherever they needed to go. And so it started out one or two people would come. Then it was seven. Then it was over 30. And when you go visit there, as I've done, you walk up toward the door and there's three or four people standing around smoking. Most churches in Glen Ellen, you don't see that. And when you go in, you find out that these people are not a ministry One of the homeless guys is out there on the parking crew helping you, guide you to your parking space. Another one came early and started the the coffee running so you could have coffee at coffee hour. You go to a Sunday school class, they're there in the class. And and when you walk in the lobby, it's kind of different because you might see a duffel bag or, or somebody leaning up in a corner snoring. I'll tell you how much this changed this church. When they did phase two of their building program, they installed large lockers with locks so that their homeless guests and visitors and members could store their stuff where they could know it would be safe and lock it up for the morning. Now, when a church in Glen Ellen, Illinois, installs lockers for the homeless, you know they've moved from no Lord to but God has shown me and heaven has opened up and miracles are happening. And that's what happens when Peter does the same. He's preaching away to Cornelius in verse 35, saying, In every nation, God accepts those who fear him and do what is right. And verse 44, even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell. There was a tidal wave of the Holy Spirit upon all who were listening to the message. And the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. You mean you don't have to become a Jew first to become a Christian? You don't have to become like me to worship my God? But they couldn't deny it because, verse 46, they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now, who's the main actor in this story? It's not Cornelius. Cornelius got a vision he was terrified by. It's not Peter. Peter got a vision he was horrified by. It's God. God is saying, I not only want to open the door to the outsider, I want to tear it off its hinges so it can never be reinstalled. 
And if you will move from no, Lord, to but God has shown me, I will bless it with an outpouring of my spirit. And that is the cure for all of us and for every church that does not want to become an insider-itis, disease-ridden church, is that we all let God move us from no, Lord, to for God has shown me. Now let's be honest. This is hard. It was really hard for Peter. In fact, at one point, he actually slipped back and stopped eating with Gentiles and went back into the pattern he'd grown up with until Paul called him out on it in public. It was bumpy. It was hard for him to give up. But think of, imagine for a moment, what would have happened if Peter had not pushed through his religious culture, his traditions, his expectations, and everything he held dear? I can tell you one thing. There's almost nobody in this room who'd be a Christian today. If you have to become a Jew to become a Christian, very few of us would have done it. And the reason I know that is that right now in global Christianity, there's over 2 billion Christians, and the percentage that are Messianic Jews is 1 one-hundredth of 1%. But God wants to obliterate forever the idea that if you want to come in and worship my God, you've got to become like me. You've got to become a Jew to become a Christian. And, oh boy, how many missteps have there been in the history of missions? You've got to become white to become a Christian. You've got to become male to become a Christian. You've got to become American to become a Christian. You've got to become well-educated to become a Christian. Can I tell you, the typical Anglican in the world today is a young Nigerian woman. And God is saying, if for us to, to reach the people we're not reaching... We have to be willing, like this early Jewish church did, to do things we're not doing. They had to give up the requirement that people coming in had to be circumcised. They had to give up the kosher dietary laws that were very important to them. They had to, they had, now, they could practice it themselves, but not make it a requirement for people to get in. They had to, to stop this thing where they won't associate with people who are, who are pagans. And so God is saying to us this morning, if you're going to reach people you're not reaching, you've got to do things you're not doing. Now, why would we not do the things that we're not doing? Because we don't like them as much as the things we are doing. Right? That's not bad. That's just human nature. I'm not doing them because I don't like them as much as what I am doing. So let's put this together. To reach people we're not reaching, we got to do things we don't like as much as what we're doing right now. And that's hard. That's why churches and other human institutions get ingrown. Now, what would it look like it, for you and for me to let God move us a little bit on this? Make us, like Peter, a little stirred up, a little nervous, a little agitated, but for the sake, and only the sake, of reaching those we're not reaching. I thought about this a year and a half ago when Stuart and Karen and I got a chance to visit the most evangelistic Anglican church in the world, Holy Trinity Brompton in London. It was there that they had the 24-7 prayer movement, and we brought that here to Res. They, they have the Alpha course, which we've used here at Res. It's been taken by 24 million people around the world. Several million people have come to Jesus Christ because of this church. And when I, I went into their churches, they have these older 18th century, 19th century buildings, beautiful organ pipes. I go, it's going to be awesome to hear the organ. They don't play the organ. They have a team like this. And then I said, it's going to be great to see the ministers process. They don't process. And then the ministers got up there, and I didn't know it was the minister because they don't wear vestments. They all wore the same thing, though. They all wore dark, skinny jeans and these amazing European shoes that cost more than these vestments. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a different thing. And for a while there, I was like, no, Lord. Now, why 
is that? There's two explanations for that reaction in me. One is that I'm a much better Anglican than all of them. <laughs> the other one is, could it be that to reach secular London, God has shown them that they have to do things they're not doing? And they were willing to go there. Now, closer to home, when we did our, our building here, we were doing value engineering to stay within our cost limits, and so we weren't able to really consider one way or another projection here in the sanctuary. And so now the conversation occasionally comes up as we're starting to think about phase two. Should we put in projection in the sanctuary? And there are two, two schools of thought on this. One people are like, we should put in projection in phase two. And the other school says, we should put in projection in phase never. <laughs> no. If I'm making this decision on my own as an insider, I can tell you what I would do. I would do phase never. And I'll tell you why. I grew up in a home with books piled upon books upon books. If you walked into the breakfast nook in my house growing up, you could hardly find a chair to sit in because of all the books. And we would sit around and read and tell each other what we were reading. I thought that was totally normal. Okay. And so when I come here, I love this church because before I even get in the door, you're handing me a free book. That is awesome. Lots of words, lots of paper, all this stuff I love. Actually, I'm not a big TV screen guy. I actually choose restaurants that don't have lots of screens staring at me during my dinner. Okay, that's how I would make the decision on my own. And I don't know what our right decision is, okay, and it's not mine to make. But here's the point. When we make that decision, not only should we reflect on what the insiders want, which we should, but we should also reflect on what do the outsiders want. Because to reach people we're not reaching, we've got to do things we're not doing. And you know what? Most Americans are not like me. Most Americans, you hand them something to read, they get really nervous. They're like, I don't read. I don't read a book. I get all my information from YouTube. Where's my screen? You see? So my point is just this. Are we going to make decisions only with us in mind? Are we going to make decisions with us and those who are not here yet in mind? Because that's different. And that's going to take us to places. Ten years ago, when Keith Hartzell was a youth pastor here, he had an amazing charism to reach kids who were out on the edge. And so a lot of the kids that he was bringing into the retreats and the youth group were like your kids out on the margins. So a lot of skaters, a lot of stoners. I remember there was one kid, his dad was supplying the pot, so you can get a feel for the family there. And, and so those kids were coming to youth group. Well, at the time, my daughter's like 16 and 17, and I'm a dad. And so I, I'm thinking... Uh, what if um, they start eyeing each other across the room? Okay? Now, I don't have the perfect answer for that. It takes wisdom. It takes some discernment. It takes some leadership there at that moment. But can I say this? God loves that stoner kid as much as he loves you or me. And he wants to reach that stoner kid. Do you know that, that, that God is depending on us to let him move us from no Lord? To for God has shown me, because the spiritual destiny of people who are currently on the outside depends on him. I mean this with all utter sobriety. There are people who, who literally will not come to Jesus Christ here unless we are willing to embrace them in a way that is uncomfortable for us. And the reason I know this, and the reason I cannot be neutral about this, is that the reason I'm on the inside today is because the people, when I was on the outside, who were on the inside, did some stuff that was crazy. At least I think it's crazy. I'll tell you how crazy it was. I was in high school. I got invited to this group. I could kind of size up. It was a religious thing. But, you know, they were having some fun, and the girls looked amazing, so I kept going. And I got there right about the time as they were planning what sounded like a conference to me. They had rented the high school auditorium there in town, 
and they were going to have a Washington Redskins player come and talk every night during the week. I thought, well, that is cool. I have no idea what he's going to talk about, but I'm sure he's going to talk about playing on the Redskins. And so they said, actually, at the end of each night, after he finishes his talk, like some of the people in the audience would like come forward. I didn't know why. And so they were looking for volunteers who would talk to those people when they came forward. So I shot out my hand and I told the leader, I'll do it, I love talking to people. <laughs> now, what I have zero awareness of is that what's going on here is what Christians call an evangelistic rally. And that what I have just volunteered to do is be a prayer counselor and lead people to Jesus when they come up at the invitation. Now, this guy at the leader kind of swallowed, and, and what he should have done as an insider was this. Hey, nothing personal, but really, you kind of have to be a Christian if you're going to help people become a Christian. And you know what I would have done if he'd done that? Because I was marginally in this group. I had a few toes over the line, and that was it. I would have bailed. Because I would have perceived it as a personal rejection, like I'm not good enough for you and I wouldn't have come back. But here's what he did. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he looked at me, rummaged in a box, and he pulled out this little booklet, and he said, take this home, read it, and if you agree with everything in here, you can do it. Now that's crazy. But I took the booklet home. I read through it. And I, when I finished it, I walked down the hall to my brother's room, and I said, you know what? I don't know what kind of Christians you and I are, but it's not what they're talking about in here. Because what they're talking about in here, this is all in, this is every day you got to do it every day. That's different. <laughs> I walked back up, to the, back up the hall to my room. I went in and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And I said, Lord, take my life. I want to be a Christian like this. And I would still be on the outside today, I fear, if the people who were on the inside had not been willing to do something a little uncomfortable and take a risk so that I could come in.